Hey there, and welcome to the Exit Plan Podcast. My name is David, and this season I'll be your host. On this podcast, I want to talk to you about the Independent Fundamental Baptist Cult. Now, before we get started, there are a lot of things that I need to provide context on because they're not going to be immediately obvious to someone who hasn't had experience with right-wing extremist Christianity. And if you're listening to this, I'm going to assume that uh, you might you might either be an ex-independent fundamental Baptist, a soon-to-be ex-independent fundamental Baptist, or you're aware of fundamentalist Christianity and its toxic culture in general. Uh, if this is your first time stumbling across any of this type of content, I definitely appreciate you listening. Hang in there. I think you're going to find uh, some of the things we have to say pretty radical, pretty unbelievable. And really the main purpose of this podcast is to, through the power of storytelling, provide a way for those who might have been, who might have been affected by the abusive practices, abusive practices or toxic practices of the independent fundamental Baptist church, um, just kind of a way to commiserate, to know that your experiences have are shared, that you're not alone and that there are other people that have been through this uh, and lead go on to lead successful lives outside of church. Uh, with that, I want to transition to just the more broader purpose of this podcast. Um, there are a lot of podcasters and shows out there that are geared towards people that are no longer in this movement, uh, that may have grown up in it or have had some experience with it. The majority of those content creators, they're still Christians themselves. So their perspective is one of, uh, it comes through the lens of Jesus Christ. It comes through the lens of the ethical and moral point of view of a Christian. Because I myself am not a Christian, uh, that won't be the perspective that you get from me. Um, I do very much and unapologetically believe that man is his own final authority. I know that for many Christians, that's something that they find disagreeable. Um, They ultimately believe that God and what his word says in the Bible should be man's ultimate authority in life. Uh, From the the start, I do want to say it, it is possible to disagree with your Christian neighbors uh, without coming across as hostile. Um, one of the, I know that in my experience, at least, whenever an opposing point of view was presented um, during any kind of biblical teaching uh, in the IFB, it was very much brought across as something that should be mocked, something that should be laughed at how ignorant it is. Uh, the teachings, if we could call them that, in the IFB don't focus on you know, supporting arguments or providing evidence on, on why people uh, are being taught what they're being taught and why that's right. It's more so this is truth, uh, accepted wholeheartedly, and any opposing view should not even be taken into consideration. Uh, but I do want to caveat and kind of pivot from that and say that this podcast isn't going to be judgmental of anybody that's a Christian. Um, this is this podcast isn't going to be judgmental of anybody that chooses to remain in church after they leave the IFB church cult. Uh, in fact, we welcome you. We anyone that's a Christian uh, that wants to hear a different perspective than what they would get at their church um, should definitely you know give us a listen and consider 
at least uh, what we're saying, what the uh, atheists on the other side of the aisle are saying. Um, but yeah, that, that's the approach. That's the perspective that you'll get on this podcast. Um, I am not, this might be one of the few instances where I actually give you a little bit of background on myself. Um, I'm, I don't want to make this podcast as, a, as an audio journal, uh, as a personal audio journal, because, because I don't think that my exit strategy for leaving the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church is something that can be replicated or followed by everyone else. Everyone's journey is different. Everyone is their own unique person with their own unique thoughts. And I'd say that the only proven exit strategy is to begin thinking critically. Uh, what I mean by that is don't just do things to go through the motions. You know, Don't just hand out that track. Don't uh, show up to church because it's the path of least resistance. Actually think about the things that you're doing, why you're doing them, and what you're benefiting or what the outcome is from those actions. So I just want to get that squared away before we get started. Um, a little bit of background on me. I live in Texas, currently living in the capital city of Austin, Texas. Um, I am 26 years old. I'm not that old. I'm not that young. And I grew up in a small farm town Farm town in East Texas. Now, for our small town, the church I attended was actually pretty big. Um, if I remember correctly, there were about 2,000 people in attendance on average. Um, and this would have been in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. The church that I attended uh, was nationally known. Um, for my fundies that are listening, we were the in the Jack Hiles sphere of influence, if that makes sense. Um, independent fundamental Baptist churches are not co-joined by a national convention, a synod, anything like that. There's no hierarchy. The hierarchy that connects these churches is unspoken. Um, it really more so matters which college you attended, which uh, IFB college you attended, um, because those are the connections that you're going to have in the ministry once your church gets up off the ground. Um, these are the men that you're going to have come preach for you. These are the, the churches that you're going to make fellowship with. So now before we go any further, let me transition into my role of a human glossary. If you're listening and you're not familiar with fundamentalist culture, Jack Howes was a very controversial but very influential uh, pastor of a church in Indiana, Hammond, Indiana, which I believe is a suburb of Chicago. This man essentially created the framework or the blueprint uh, by which a majority, if not all, independent fundamental Baptist churches uh, grew their congregations, ran their churches, um, you know, it was very much, he created the blueprint that was then taken and replicated across the country. Um, from my experience, there is not, there are very few things that differ between churches that identify as independent fundamental Baptist. The majority of them, even right down to the, to the sanctuary or the altar or, or the pulpit, whatever you want to call it, um, are architecturally similar. Um, you can tell, and, and it might be a little hard to distinguish members of an IFB church, if you see them out in public from, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses um, or even uh, some Mormons. Because like the Mormons and like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the independent fundamental Baptist churches have their own community outreach programs where members of the church, they go out and they 
gift people literature, um, usually something the size of a three by three by five card, and these are known as tracks. Uh, these tracks are generally intended to spur a conversation about uh, eternity and, and death and the Bible. And the ultimate goal uh, for these interactions, for this social outreach, is to peer pressure and quick make a quick sale, uh, lead people into a quick prayer that ultimately, you know, gives them peace of mind that they are that they're trusting in Jesus Christ to go to heaven. And if you're if you're a Christian, if you grew up um, in a mainstream evangelical church, the the main contention that mainstream evangelicals and Christians have with this practice is that they they don't agree that a quick decision like this, something you have to be talked into, um, is sufficient for someone to claim that they are a true believer of Christ or have truly been saved. Now, again, this podcast is not going to be focused on, on theology or religion um, because of the nature of what we'll be speaking about and because of our and because of some of the stories we'll be telling, I'll, throw, I'll sprinkle some theology uh, for context in here every now and then. But I don't want to make it the main focus of, of the podcast, like I said. Um, but it was through one of these social outreach programs that my parents were introduced to the IFB church in our small town. Uh, the church was actually split um, based on, you know, the English-speaking church met on in one room. The Spanish-speaking church met in another room. And I say room, but really the, the English-speaking church had this huge auditorium, and then everyone that spoke Spanish was just kind of confined to this small corner room on the second floor. And actually, they were, they were kind of a bit of an afterthought. Pretty soon after that, uh, they became regular members. Uh, that was our home church. We were wholly involved in the programs and the activities of that church. So a lot of a lot of the context that I'll be giving you is from firsthand experience. Uh, there are some shows out there, some podcasts, some content creators that speak on the independent fundamental Baptist movement, but my biggest uh, complaint, I guess you could say, with them is that they actually haven't been to one of these churches. Um, they may have grown up mainstream evangelical. They may have not grown up religious at all. Uh, but I really think it was... it. It's different when you hear it from the perspective of someone that's lived through it. Um, I'm not saying that I'm any more, am any more an expert on a specific subject or uh, a specific trauma or, or anything uh, more than somebody else, but I do think that I can bring a certain tour guide aspect. I hate, I hate to say tour guide, but I think that's the closest thing, um, or that's the closest phrase that I can associate with the thought that I'm trying to convey. Um, but a lot of the, uh, going back to the outreach programs, a lot of those outreach programs really focus on people who are lonely, are destitute. Um, I remember when I was a part of them, the majority of the folks that would accompany us to church were low income. Uh, m many of them were children. Many, many of them were children. In fact, the majority of the kids that we picked up on this big red and blue school bus that we used to drive around town uh, were from the Section 8 apartment homes in our small town. It, we were essentially a free daycare for parents who wanted a Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning off from their children. Um, and the specifically the, the bus ministry is what they called it. 
the people that ran these school buses through town and picked up children and bring to church, a lot of the tactics that they employed uh, were meant to target children. We would give out candy. Um, we would have prizes. We would have sandwiches after church, you know. So if you're a kid that otherwise is just going to be running around with their friends on a Sunday morning, you know, why not go get some candy or why not go get some free food uh, from these church people, from these church folk is what they used to call us. That and uh, more is what I want to share with you guys on this podcast. I won't get it into that a great deal. Um, but as I got older, uh, my parents actually pulled me out of public school and I started attending the K through 12 school that the church ran. It was really, and I heard this phrase recently, it was, it was more of a homeschool co-op. It was more of the people employed or the staff that was employed by the church coming in and helping us uh, go through the Abeka curriculum. Um, if you're familiar with the Fundy World, if you're familiar with Pensacola Christian College, Abeka is one of the uh, series of curriculum, or I guess curriculum, is that the plural word for it? Maybe. It's the curriculum that they publish specifically for homeschoolers, for Christian homeschoolers, um, or for K-12 through schools that are not public. Uh, and I say not public, meaning they're run by a church like the one that I went to. Most, most of the time, those schools that use Abeka are run by independent fundamental Baptist churches, um, but I know a couple of other denominations, you know, use their stuff. So fast forward a couple of years, I spent all of middle school and the first two years of high school at the church's school. Um, it was definitely a different experience from, say, somebody who went to public school, and it was around the first few years of high school that I realized I was in an environment that I did not like. I was in an environment that restricted me from doing things that I wanted to do. And the people that were there um, weren't into the same things that I was. Uh, my parents weren't as strict as, as strict at home as some of their parents were. So I had a little bit of exposure to uh, popular culture, pop culture. Um, I'd listen to rap. I, I had YouTube. We had the internet. Um, I'd watch Jersey Shore. And I'm really aging myself there. Um, and there was really just nobody that I could talk to about it. Um, yeah, a couple kids here and there would know what I was talking about because they'd sneak behind their parents' back. Um, and it was very much a culture of just being sneaky and, you know, finding a way around the rules, essentially. I remember one of the big things was that um, we weren't allowed cell phones in school. And we, for some reason were allowed uh, to have our, if you had a Nintendo DS and you had a free hour of time or quote-unquote study hall and you could prove that all your homework was done, um, if you had a video game console, and most of us had a Nintendo DS, you could pull it out and play video games. They, uh, again, you, <laughs> you could tell this Christian school took education very seriously. I, For those of you that may not know, the Nintendo DS had a very primitive chat system, and I, and I don't know how they did it outside of Wi-Fi. This is, like, pretty ahead of its time. Um, it had a chat system where you could go and chat with other people that had a Nintendo DS that had this app open on their Nintendo DS and just communicate back and forth. And I remember that it was called PictoChat. And I remember the PictoChat 
was very active in our school. You could go on there um, if there were multiple people that uh, had their Nintendo DS out. They they were not playing a video game. They were on there communicating, um, and that's super dumb. You know, it's it's harmless. It it's just that's the culture that we were in. You know, we we had to make do because keep in mind we couldn't talk to each other. You could talk without permission. That's how strict it was. But anyways, that's a good segue into um, more so the type of people that were around me at the time. And um, I always thought of it this way. There's those who followed the rules to a T and would rat you out and turn you in if they ever found out that you didn't toe the line. There were those that were wishy-washy. They were in between uh, when the adults were around. When the authority was around, they'd follow the rules, and they'd tow the party line. Um, but you, you can never be too sure with them because you feel like they might turn you in if you mention that you had seen a particular movie or you knew about a particular song. You just never knew. It was always that, you know, what if I'm trusting the wrong person? Um, and then there were those of us like me who uh, were pretty freight flagrantly against the rules um, and they didn't care who knew and you know I was the kind of person you could come up to and like hey have you seen such and such movie and I'd start talking to you about it and I keep referring back to movies and music because a lot of pop culture was railed against it was taught against you weren't allowed to engage in the culture of the quote-unquote world which is this uh, phrase that just kind of encompasses anybody that's not in the independent fundamental Baptist sphere the world, everything, we were taught that everything in the world is out to get you. Everything in the world is out to put a stumbling block in your Christian life. Uh, we were taught that we had to be extremely careful of the things we consumed, which there is, there's definitely some truth to that. Um, what you consume makes up your thoughts, and what your thoughts are makes up, make up, you know, uh, who you are as a person. That's a very oversimplified way to put it. Um, but, there, you know, that's definitely a valid uh, a valid thing, uh, but in the wrong context. You see, this was fear-based control. There's always the fear that if you left the fold, if you left our world, something was going to get you, you know? And it wasn't until I started calling their bluff, and by them, or they, I mean the authorities, uh, that I fully understood this. Um, I was about 16 years old. I was at my first job, and I was finally getting some exposure to people who didn't go to my church, who didn't believe the same way I did, who didn't have to hide who they were, essentially. They didn't have a double identity. Um, and I realized that not only were they a lot nicer than some of the people I went to church with, they were a lot happier on the surface, they seemed a lot happier. So it was at that point in time that I actually, I started to question, you know, is it worth putting in all this effort to keep up this facade so that I can remain in this social structure, I can remain in this social sphere? Because that's really what it is. There is very much a culture of celebrity within the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. And those that are those are those that gain favor with the leadership are at the top of the social hierarchy, or even those that are directly related to the leadership are at the top of the social hier hierarchy, and they know it. 
Um, you know, so around this time, questions in my head started to arise, uh, more so towards the church and why I was there. And eventually, and I say eventually, but a lot happened in between this. Uh, my deconversion process started at 17. And I believe I was, I see, what was it, 20 years old? Yeah, so for a period of three years, I was, I was pretty much in limbo. Um, and I was 20 years old when I was sitting, we were sitting, I was sitting in church and I was sitting in the back because at this point I really didn't associate with anyone there. I would just kind of show up, make sure my parents saw me, uh, at church and then dip out as soon as I can. So it was Christmas of 2015. It was the play put on by the church and I, the Christmas nativity scene. I think that's what they're called. Um, I looked up. I thought to myself, do I, do I really want to be here? And I knew the answer, but I said it out loud. I, I think I even might have caught some looks from the usher that was standing next to me. And I realized that I didn't. And it sounds, it sounds really dumb and it sounds really simple, but I, I stood up and I walked out the back door grab my car keys the entire time you know I'm thinking someone's gonna follow me out uh someone's gonna be like hey where you going man it's like hey why don't you come back inside and sit down and I kept looking back you know expecting half expecting somebody to follow me out some expecting you know somebody to try to talk me out of it um but no I I walked out the door remember unlocking the car jumping in turning it on and right in front of the church is one of the uh, main thoroughfares of the town that we live in. It's a pretty wide two-lane road with a shoulder on each side. And I had a little sports car at the time. I just rolled the windows down. There was a really pretty sunset um, that day. Blasted my rock music or rap. It was probably rap. All the way up. Rolled the windows down. Opened the sunroof. And I left. I actually... I can't say that after that day I attended faithfully the church, any church ever again. Um, that was six years ago. A lot has happened. A lot has happened in that time. Um, but you know, I think that might have been that might have been the single point in time I can point you to where I said I'm I'm done. I'm walking away from this. This isn't for me anymore. Uh, and really, that's that's the challenge that I want to pose to you. If you're listening and you're still in the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, call their bluff. Start to wonder, start to question, you know, what's that one thing that seems off to you that just doesn't seem right? You know, pull that thread, and I think you'll be surprised at how much you can uncover, not only about yourself, once you, about yourself and, and your environment, but once you get that ball rolling, you know, as they say, it's only downhill from there. Um, if you're listening, if you've made it this far, thank you. You've listened to me essentially ramble on about my childhood for quite a while now. And I do want to reward you. Um, on this episode, I've got two stories for you. These are both written by the same person. This person went to my church, went to my, uh, went to the college that the church ran. Because they actually, they had a well, quote-unquote college uh, once you graduated the K through 12 school, you were assumed that you know this was going to be your alma mater. This was going to be your uh, secondary education. Uh, but th these were written by the same person. 
in the early, well, they take place in the early 90s, but they weren't shared until the mid-2000s. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoy, and see you on the next episode. Have you ever turned your life completely over to someone else? Have you ever completely given up your liberties for nothing in return? That's what I did when I moved into the dorm. Dorm student life was tightly regulated. No one was to leave campus without permission for any reason. There were two types of permission slips. One was a permanent permission slip that was turned in for approval at the beginning of each semester. A slip pertained to regular activities such as a job. It was filled out and signed in triplicate. One copy was posted to our bed. One copy was kept by us at all times. And the last copy was on file in the college office. All student jobs were regulated tightly by the college staff. Student activity while on the job was monitored closely as well, and staff members were in regular contact with employers to evaluate a student's performance, behavior, and attitude while on the job. A bad report from an employer could result in demerits. Being fired from a job or quitting without giving sufficient notice was grounds for automatic expulsion. Students were allowed to miss Wednesday night services for work, but never bus ministry on Saturday and never church services on Sunday. Besides the permanent permission slips, there were also temporary ones that were issued for any activity that wasn't regularly scheduled. For instance, if a student planned to leave campus and go shopping, he had to have a permission slip signed first. This could only be done by college staff and only during afternoon weekday office hours from 1 to 4 p.m. Without these permission slips, leaving campus at any time was a demeritable offense. One of the staff members explained that this was because unplanned activities often lead to sin. We were to live by a schedule, and if we had any character at all, getting permission slips signed ahead of time would be no problem for us. What made matters worse was that many times permission slips simply weren't granted for some activities, and for no apparent reason. Students were told sometimes that although the activity wasn't inherently wrong, that it wasn't in his best interest to pursue it. The student would be better off staying in the dorm and studying or praying than he would wasting his time on something frivolous. One such instance was when we tried to get permission to go to McDonald's or Taco Bell late in the evening. See, many of the dorm guys slept through supper because of their work, of their work schedule, and they wanted permission to go to a fast food place and pick something up when they woke up. This permission wasn't granted. Staff was adamant that they weren't going to aid a student's laziness by encouraging him through sleep to sleep through his regular dorm meal and allow him to get food elsewhere later on. Well, for over a month, I got around that one by keeping a slow leak in one of my tires on my car. It took the tire a little more than a day to completely run out of air, so every night I'd tell the dorm supervisor that I needed to go fill my tire up with air because if I didn't, it would be flat in the morning when I tried to go to work. Emergency situations like that were exceptions to the rule. So every night, I would drive to a service station, fill up the tire, and then pass through a Hardee's or McDonald's or Taco Bell on the way back. I'd pass through the dorm, taking orders, collecting money, and everybody would chip in a little extra so that I could get what I wanted as my fee for going. Word got out to the staff that my tire had a slow leak, and for over a month that I'd been regularly filling it up at night. One of the staff members made a big deal one day about a dorm student who had so little character that he couldn't get a tire fixed on his car. He really made fun of me for five or ten minutes in his sermon during chapel and blasted me good. All the guys laughed and laughed because we knew who the real fools were.
Anytime a dorm student left the immediate dorm area, he had to sign out on a sheet that was by the door. He had to print his name, sign it, write in his destination, and what time he planned to return. When he came back, he had to sign back in and write the time down again. These sheets were turned into the office regularly so that college staff could monitor all student activity. If anything abnormal or obscure appeared on the sign-out sheets, the student was called in and questioned about it. Any failure to sign in or out was a demeritable offense. It became a sort of game to see how obscure we could be in our destinations without being called in. I was always the guy pushing the envelope to see how far they would let me. I wanted to know how closely those sign-out sheets were monitored, so at first I'd be a little obscure about my destination. I'd put to the store, or to get gas, or outside. When I wasn't questioned right away on this, I started putting things like going crazy or see signed permission slips for more info. That got me called in and questioned. I was told to be more specific. What made things worse was the whole Gestapo atmosphere of the place. Everyone was looking over his shoulder to see who was watching him. Everyone was looking over other people's shoulders to see what they were doing as well. We lived in a police state under martial law. Nobody trusted anybody because when somebody got busted, we didn't always know who the snitch was. The best way not to get snitched on was to have something on everybody else. It was our only insurance. That dorm had to be the most unchristian place I've ever lived. The Church Bouncer Jim Bradbury was my room leader. He was two years younger than I was and a freshman. While I was a junior or senior, I really can't remember which. That didn't bug me. I knew where I stood with authority. But it did bother Jim some. Jim was a very likable guy. He was six feet tall and weighed about 260 pounds at the time. He was rock solid. He slept on the bottom bunk with a hunting knife strapped to the mattress above him within ready reach. He was also a martial arts expert and the pastor's personal bodyguard. Every church service, he walked the pastor between his office and the auditorium and then back again. During the service, he was patrolling the hallways making sure everything was in order. He had a special seat at the back of the auditorium that was enclosed in dark glass. He also had earpiece, an earpiece on at all times and kept surveillance over the congregation during the service. Often, he was told to keep his eye on certain people in the crowd who looked suspicious for one reason or another. He was also on call for any troublemaking kids. Sometimes, he would have to go to a certain place on property and subdue a rebellious teenager. Several times, he took, he took away knives, and once he took away a gun. One time, there was a big kid putting a whooping on an usher until they got the kid under control. They called Jim, and when he got there, three of them were holding him down. When they saw Jim, they turned him loose. What'd you do that for? Well, we figured you could handle him. At first, Jim enjoyed this sort of thing, but after a while, his conscience began to bother him about it. Why was he always having to physically restrain minors? Once, he was told to handle a kid who turned out to be about 14 years old. He said his conscience bothered him so bad about it that he was physically sick afterwards. Some teenagers siphoned some gas out of several of the buses once, and from then on, Jim was patrolling the property at night, too. The gun he took away was from an adult who was mad that their kid had been baptized without permission. A year or so later, in the summer of 1992 to be exact, the church was the subject of a news investigation by a local news station, and allegations were made that they frequently baptized kids without parental permission. This was true. 
The pastor lied and denied that it was church policy to baptize children without parental permission. I know what their policy was. We were told often that it wasn't necessary to get parents' permission to baptize a kid. Why would we go to a drunk or a whore to get permission to do what God had commanded us to do? This was the policy of the bus ministry under two different staff members. When the news investigation came out, our policy was quickly changed. Parental permission slips were printed up and handed out to all the workers. And then the lie was propagated that it had been church policy all along. Before long, the college and the church scene began to wear on my friend Jim. He was even asked to do surveillance on students and inform staff of their activities. He tells me now that he was told to follow me one morning and make sure I was really going to work like I said I was. By that time, he was tired of it, so he left the parking lot after I did and just went to a convenience store to have a cup of coffee instead. All of it was really working on his conscience.